0: Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Allison Insero, Senior Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. Against a backdrop of the healthcare and cost concerns stemming from the COVID-19 pandemic, the April issue of AJMC, featured an interview with Dr. Sherry Gleed, health economist and Dean of New York University's Robert F. Wagner Graduate School of Public Service about the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid, as well as the vital role that public service leadership plays in navigating a crisis of this scale. First, let me just ask you, how are you doing with everything going on in the world?
1: Well, it's very crazy between sort of all the different parts of my life. So, as Dean, I'm overseeing the transformation of our school from being an in-person school, very much situated in the heart of New York City, to being completely online. Um, But it's working, we have an amazing staff. We've really managed to, to pull it off. And then I'm teaching. And then as a health policy researcher, I mean, these are crazy times, and it's hard to think even about how we should be moving forward, although, Certainly, we are in a better position because the Affordable Care Act happened than we would be in this horrible, horrible tragedy if we didn't even have those people covered. And then, you know, I'm also a person living in New York City as the world collapses around me, and that's very frightening. It's just kind of heartbreaking to watch. As
0: you mentioned, we're conducting this interview on a day when the world and the country is in the midst of this pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yesterday, it was 10 years since the ACA law was signed. The ACA did a number of things, which you wrote about in the March issue of health affairs, to improve access and, and other things for people to get health insurance. But going forward, what will it take for the U.S. to solve the problem of health insurance and health cost and access, given the state of affairs that we're in now, if there were problems before, as you say, what happens next?
1: I want to separate out what we need to do right now to deal with the immediate crisis that we face right now. And I think it's important, you know, people, there is this expression that you should never let a good crisis go to waste and that every crisis is an opportunity. But I think sometimes a crisis is just a crisis and it needs to be dealt with as such. And I think that's the situation we're in right now. Um, We need to be doing something to make sure that our hospitals have enough resources to be able to take care of the enormous numbers of people they're going to be needing to take care of. We need to make sure that people have enough financial protection so that getting sick doesn't bankrupt them um, in an already incredibly convoluted, depressed economy. We need to fix all of those things immediately, and this is probably not the moment to be making long-term health policy choices, um, because building an institution to go forward ought to take longer than a week, but solving those problems shouldn't take longer than a week. We have to solve those problems right now. And I would be really weary of coming up with a health policy program going forward that we could figure out in a week. So I I think there's like a separation there. So let's talk about the second part of it because that's what sort of my paper was about a little bit. Mm -hmm. Sort of what the ACA, what sort of left with the ACA passed. And I guess the first big chunk that's left is that 14 states still haven't expanded Medicaid. It's practically free for states to do that not fully free, but practically free, and it's really hard to see why they haven't, so that's number one. Uh, number two is that while the ACA provided people with a lot more financial protection that they, than they had before the law, and I think you know people's memories are, understandably, that things, have, things have displaced what they knew about the world in 2008, but there is a lot more financial protection now than there was then. There's still a lot of people who face enormous potential financial out of pocket costs. And and we actually sort of going going back to the COVID situation, um, we see that here. I mean, if you have a, a large out-of-pocket maximum, and I think here it's the out-of-pocket maximum at least as much as the deductible that's at issue, you could be you could face pretty high expenses relative to your income in either the Affordable Care Act marketplace plans or employer sponsored insurance. I think there's no really good reason for us to be doing that to people it's not the way we can control costs. So we're going to have to solve that problem. And that's, I think, a a second direction that we need to go. And I think it's not not limited to people who are in the marketplaces. It's also a big problem in traditional employer-sponsored insurance. So all of that is on the financial protection side. Then the second, you know, so the other part of the question is, what are we going to do to contain healthcare costs? The Affordable Care Act did a couple of things in efforts to contain healthcare costs. And I just think It's worth thinking about what they were and what they did and where that leaves us going forward. So the first big thing that the ACA did is it actually changed the update factor for the payment of hospitals in the Medicare system. This is such an arcane little point. It had to do with adding a productivity adjustment to the way that hospitals payments were updated from one year to the next that I think nobody's even paid any attention to it because it seems so obscure. But it's actually one of the main mechanisms that was used to finance the whole system. The whole expansion of coverage, a big chunk of the money for that came from just um, containing those, up, you know, limiting those update factors. And I think they, that limit on the prices paid to hospitals by Medicare has actually redounded through the whole system so that in general, I think that it, it has had a cost containing effect, um, not only within the Medicare program, but actually in the private insurance market as well. So um, one thing we learned from that is that actually paying less reduces the cost, which seems like a no brainer, but has been something that people had been at, at one point pretty skeptical about. The second piece that the ACA tried to do is to contain costs by doing a whole lot of experiments in delivery system reform, accountable care organizations and bundled payment and different pay for performance efforts and so on. And I would say that the jury on those is that, you know, what we've learned from those is that there are small savings to be had here and there, but they have not been transformative in terms of bending the cost curve. I think think that has been a great disappointment to a lot of people working in health policy and health services. I think there has been a long-term belief that There's just a lot of kind of inefficiency and waste that could be squeezed out of the U.S. healthcare system with better payment mechanisms or more appropriate management of things. And I think what we're learning is that's probably not really true. That's not where the costs are coming from. And that's consistent with kind of the international experience that our rates of utilization are not radically higher than in other countries. And I think it poses a concern going forward.
0: Collectively. Um, you would call those things that you mentioned value-based care. Um, set oh, up value-based
1: back- care, yes. Delivery system reform around value-based care, yes.
0: Right. So do you think the future of value-based care will continue the way it's been given that the results haven't been what people hoped? Is it's just nibbling yeah. around the edges of the problem and it's not really going to reform healthcare the way we need it to?
1: I, I think... I think value-based care makes a great deal of sense, and I think it has some important potential. And the the important potential that it has is that it it provides bigger rewards to healthcare systems, organizations, providers, who are behaving in the way that we would like people to behave relative to people who are behaving in a way that we would not like people to behave. And in the long run, Maybe that means that the more efficient healthcare systems, the ones that are producing value will be the ones that grow and the ones that are not producing value will over time shrink as a share of the healthcare system. And that eventually this will move us towards a more efficient healthcare system, which I think would be a great outcome. Um, I think that's a very different story than people imagined when these went into place, where people thought that simply changing the incentives we, we gave providers would lead to a wholesale transformation um, that would actually save a lot of money. We haven't seen that happen.
0: You mentioned, I think, international pricing a few minutes ago. Do you think a uh, pricing index is the way to go to really
1: implement more reform? I don't think we want to be, I, I, I don't think that we should have so much confidence in other countries to take their prices, but I do think it suggests what we see is that you know, paying very high prices for things creates a bunch of incentives in the system that are probably not the incentives we really want in the system. So we need to think about how we bring those prices down to create better, not only to bring costs down, but also to create more sensible incentives in the system. So because, um, because healthcare services tend to be services with very high fixed costs and relatively low marginal costs, for example it costs a lot to build a hospital it doesn't cost that much more to put one more bed in the hospital or to have one more patient in the hospital so what hosp- that gives hospitals a big incentive if the price is if the price is high enough to keep the hospital full as much as possible that we see that all the time if we and and in order to keep the hospital full they may in times when they can i mean now we're in, in exactly the opposite time but they may be trying to encourage people to have to come to the hospital for elective surgeries they might, You might see a lot of competition around technologies, things that are perhaps not really efficient. If the prices are a little bit lower, it actually reduces the, boat, the, the incentives for hospitals to behave in that way. So it's not only that the prices are high and that means that costs are high, but also that the prices are high and those give, that those high prices give people incentives to do things like you know, build more MRI machines or you know, hire more people who provide services that, that attract consumers more than, than those consumers would really be willing to pay for in the absence of health insurance and so on. So I think, you know, thinking hard about how much we're paying for things is something we really ought to be doing. And I, let me just, you know, one more point I would say about that is that we often talk about the U.S. healthcare system as one in which prices are determined by markets um, and competition and so on, but the reality is there's very little competition in most parts of the U.S. healthcare market. Most people live in places that couldn't possibly support two or three tertiary care hospitals competing on price with one another. And the data suggests that if you don't have three or four hospitals of the same type competing with one another, you're not getting the full benefits of competition. So, and I think that's true as well, even in specialty care markets and so on. We're We're just, we can't possibly rely on competition in a in a world where these markets are relatively small, and so you're not. It's not like coffee shops. So I think thinking about how we might uh, be more proactive in trying to adjust hot prices is something is a direction we're going to need to go.
0: How do you think this experience will shape tomorrow's healthcare administrators and healthcare policymakers? Given the students that you have now who are graduating, what will they need to be able to do in the years ahead? Because the effects of this will obviously be with us for a long time.
1: Well, I, I think there's a couple, there's sort of a good news, bad news story here. I think the good news story is, you know, people are often dismissive of public service and they think it's not important and that anybody can do it and that it's not, you know, a big deal and I think the one thing that we have learned about the last two months is that it really matters and that having people do the right thing and having those organizations properly managed not only that they do the right thing from a from a delivery perspective but that they actually can operate in a crisis that they can order supplies and and staff up and do all of those things and keep the keep things moving that's tremendously important so um, I think that's a, a good thing for our students. Um, I think that their talents will be recognized, and it's really important for us to provide them with the education that will make them nimble and flexible and competent and, you know, excellent in doing these functions, because we all depend on it for our lives. Going back to the Affordable Care Act for a minute,
0: in yeah. your, your, you discussed- um, you know the effect of the administration's uh, efforts to change what the uh, act can do and will do, and the upcoming Supreme Court decision that could happen uh, by the end of 2020. Do you oh, think? Yeah. yeah. Do you think the ACA has any inherent flaws in it, or do you think it's all external? Anything that was. I mean,
1: look would nobody no person no no person i can imagine in the world if they were put in a in a room with an infinite amount of time and asked to design their their the very best healthcare system in the world i don't think the aca is what anybody would design it's not anybody's magic perfect healthcare system it's a political it's the outcome of a political process people had to compromise to get to where they got to. You, you will remember, if you were around then, well, 2005, you were around then, right? Mm-hmm. The thing passed by, a, by like the thinnest of margins, by a hair's breadth. And it didn't even really, you know, remember that the Senate passed a bill and the House passed a bill and then Scott Brown was elected. Remember, there was this, The it almost didn't happen at all. Um, it's not like there was some great alternative idea out there that was rejected in favor of the ACA. The ACA was kind of the most you could do given the composition of the Senate um, at that time, the opposition of the Republicans, even the composition of the House. Um, So of course, I think there are many ways that you could build a a much better health plan, but I'm not sure you could build a better health plan that could pass Congress, and that's really the one that matters. Good point.
0: I remember Professor Billing saying that uh, Hillary's health care plan would have been the full employment act for all of us.
1: <laughs> it, you know, all of these things, but none of them, the, the key here is you don't get, you don't get to, you don't, we're not an autocracy. We're not, we're not a place, you know, we're not, a, we're not a place where some technocrat somewhere designs the best possible health plan. You have to get it through Congress and look at how hard it is even for them to get the stimulus through. In the face of this enormous crisis, it's really hard, and and for legitimate reasons, people have different opinions about how things ought to work, um, and they have to be worked out. Um, but it was it, I would say, anybody who worked in health, who was who had been working in health policy at the time that the Affordable Care Act passed, if you had asked them on the day that Barack Obama was elected whether we would get anything as as broad and comprehensive as the ACA. I think 99 out of 100 of them would have said no. It's much more than anyone expected would pass. Um, and it was a very lucky confluence of events that allowed it to happen. Um, so yes, of course, it's not the dream plan I think that anybody had, but it's, it's a pretty good plan given, given the constraints that, that everyone was under.
0: Are there incentives that you think are possible that can um, make uh, scientific breakthroughs that are translative and innovative also be accessible and affordable
1: Well, I think of course that's true. I mean we see that in all sectors of the economy um, i think I think i don 't know if you're asking about sort of prescription drugs which which are a challenge um, or medical care generally. I mean, most medical care innovation it's not is not patented or anything. People are figuring out how to treat people, and and, and that sort of process work happens. But if you're thinking about drugs, um, I am. yeah, I am. And, and a lot of a lot of the innovation happens around drugs. You know, um, the drug question is a trade-off, and we are getting a better sense of what the trade-off is. Um, uh, the trade-off is about is really between. Um, how, much, how much money goes into the drug industry, which means how much money can be devoted to um, research and development in the drug industry, and how much it costs people to buy drugs during the time that drugs are on patent. Eventually they fall off patent and become generic, but you know, for 18, 20 years, people might have to pay very high rates, high prices for them. Now there's no magic in that trade-off. There is no reason to believe the trade-off we're making now is the right trade-off. It's a completely arbitrary trade-off completely arbitrary somebody came up with with a patent length i don't even know when they were not thinking about new cancer drugs or anti anti antiretrovirals or anything they just had a number and that's the number that we have and somehow we've decided that that's the magic number and it's perfect there's no reason to believe it's perfect there's growing literature that talks about exactly how much innovation would you give up if you uh if you lowered the prices of drugs when they first came out and I think that literature suggests not as much as you might fear, but some. I mean, I don't think it's right to say that it would be none, something. Um, uh, So I think this is a reasonable debate to have, a very healthy debate for us to be having.
0: Is there anything else you want to say or a question I didn't ask that you would want to answer? It's a freebie.
1: I think that's a good set of questions and I'm glad to be interviewed by a (laughs) Wagnerd.
0: Well, thank you very much, and I hope that you and your family and, and everyone stay safe. Take care. Uh, all all right. right. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. For more about this issue, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, visit info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.